to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, and welcome to the third series of the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and in this month's series, we will be in conversation with global experts on the current challenges facing the local to global tuberculosis response. Behind COVID-19, tuberculosis is the second deadliest infectious disease across the world, with more than 4,100 tuberculosis-related deaths every day. We will be talking about how evidence from and about communities and people can help to ensure that decision-making is informed and that the global commitment to NTB by 2035 is achieved. My co-host for this month is Dr. Rona Mijumbi. Welcome, Rona. You are a senior lecturer of public policy at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Thank you, Kim. Good day to all our listeners, wherever you're listening in from. My name is Rona Mijumbi, a senior lecturer of public policy at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and your co-host today. I qualified as a medical doctor and hold a doctorate in health policy. And through my clinical work, my research and public policy, mostly in low and middle income countries, I have interacted with the topic of tuberculosis in several ways. And I'm so excited to be here to host with you, Kim, these experts from whom we shall learn a lot today. Thanks, Rhoda. It really sounds like you have a wealth of expertise in this area, and I'm really looking to co-hosting with you over the next four episodes. So, Rona, to start us off, can you tell us why is TB an important topic for this series? Kim, progress you know, made in the global TB response has been set back by more than a decade by the COVID-19 pandemic with increased tuberculosis deaths because of reduced access to care. The World Health Organization estimates in their annual report that nearly 10 million people developed tuberculosis in 2020, of which 4.2 million were neither diagnosed nor reported. It is estimated that two-thirds would have been men. Increased transmission is expected because so many TB cases have been missed during the past two years, exacerbated by social determinants, you know, for example, extreme poverty and malnutrition these, you know, fueling the pandemic. In the absence of an effective TB vaccine for adults, primary control is treatment of those diagnosed with this disease. And so improving case detection is an urgent priority. And this means connecting with citizens and communities for equitable access to the care they need. Thanks, Rona. That sounds really interesting. Can you just tell us a bit of bit more about case detection. What do you mean by case detection? So Kim, uh, you can actually be out there walking around with tuberculosis and having no idea. So there are those that have symptoms. There are those that don't necessarily have the symptoms that, you know, you would point to. And therefore efforts to actually go out and find what we call cases, the people who have the tuberculosis disease. Those efforts are what we are referring to in terms of case detection. Thanks, Rona. That really helps. I can see why discussing TB and really ensuring that it remains a priority given the current pandemic is very important. And that considering gender disparities is crucial for the TB response. 
And I think that's why we're going to focus this week on gender. And we have guests with us, Dr. Catherine Horton and Dr. Jeremiah Chikavore, who will be talking about gender equitable access to DP prevention and care. Welcome, esteemed guests. Catherine, can you tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Of course. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Rena. Um, I am an infectious disease epidemiologist, and over my career, I've had opportunities to work on a variety of diseases um, across the African region, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Western Pacific. But for the last eight years, I've been based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And my work is focused primarily on gender disparities and tuberculosis, uh, particularly in terms of the number of people who are affected and their access to diagnosis and treatment. I'm currently part of a six-year cross-disciplinary global health research program called the LIGHT Consortium, which is funded by UK Aid and works with partners in Kenya, Malawi, Nigeria, uh, Uganda, and the UK. And through this program, what we're aiming to do is to support policy and practice in really transforming gendered pathways to health for people living with TB in urban HIV prevalent settings. And that means our ultimate goal is to improve health, socioeconomic and equity outcomes, and ultimately stop the spread of TB. Thanks very much. So many contexts and so much experience. I'll look forward to hearing more about how those contexts and the people and communities living in those contexts are affected by TB and how they have connected with the research. But let's first hear from Dr. Jeremiah Chikavore. Tell us about yourself and a bit about your work. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Rona, for hosting me. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be uh, here together with Catherine. Um, my name is Jeremiah Chikavore. I'm a health sociologist who is working out of the Human Sciences Research Council. And I am based in Durban in South Africa. Now, for more than a decade and a half, my research has revolved around men's location in health issues, initially focusing on sexual and reproductive health, and then later HIV and tuberculosis. I have a grounding in qualitative methods, or what can also be termed interpretive approaches to research. I've been involved in projects that mainly focus on engaging men in TB control, gender in infectious diseases with a focus on TB, I've also been involved in surveys such as this first South African National Tuberculosis Survey and quite a few other projects, uh, including some on quality of tuberculosis care within the private sector uh, and also optimizing uh, the linkage to care uh, for private sector TB patients. I've been and continue to be involved in other studies of various sizes. I've held a fellowship funded by the Wellcome Trust and I work largely in Southern Africa uh, and also collaborate uh, globally. Um, fairly recently with colleagues from York and Maastricht universities, we founded the Social Science and Health Innovations for TB Virtual Center, uh, through which we hope to promote the visibility of social sciences in tuberculosis. Thank you for joining us. It sounds like between both of you, you have a lot of experience. And what is really interesting here is when we think about gender, we often think of women and gender disparities between women and girls. But you've both mentioned men in your discussions and Rona yourself as well. So to build on that a little bit more, in each of our series at the beginning of the episode, we like to understand the key considerations of connecting with people and communities in the different contexts where you work. 
Now, I know that you've mentioned a lot of context here. So if you could unpick that slightly, that would be really useful for us and how it relates to TB. Uh, who would like to start? Which we start with you, Catherine. Sure, certainly. Um, I think when we're talking about about TB and about gender, what what's key in any context is is to recognize that gender norms are really setting specific. So we talk a lot about gender, but gender is a is a social construct. And so, what's a gender norm in one community in one part of the world may be very different from what's a gender norm in another part. You know, so what it means for me as an American woman living in the UK, um, my role as a woman may be very different from a woman living somewhere else in the world, really anywhere else in the world in a different context. Um, and so I think it's hugely important in our work around gender that we understand the communities where we're working, where we're working and that we connect with the people there so that we know what gender expectations are, how they change over time, how different gender expectations exist simultaneously within a community um, and recognize that there's there's huge diversity there. It's not just a binary of women are this, men are this, um, but we recognize gender as a spectrum and that even within that spectrum, you know, there's there's just huge diversity in what gender means. So I think it's really important on this issue that that we connect to two people and two communities. Thanks, Catherine. That's really interesting. And, and I think what I'm hearing here is it's really important to consider, consider context because gender norms, as you say, are setting specific um, and also that they change over time. Jeremiah, could you kind of add to this question, but maybe consider how gender norms change over time in your answer as well? Absolutely. And I think I, Catherine has put it perfectly fine. Uh, gender is a social construct. And in order to be able to work with and um, understand uh, what the communities deal with, what the communities uh, grapple with, we really have to perform, to do research with communities. And one of the key things that we need to do is to understand the people's meanings. So here we are also now talking about methodology. I said earlier I'm a qualitative uh, researcher uh, and um my focus is interpretive work. What meanings do people have as they are grounded within their everyday lives? And I think this is one of the key things that we need to, 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 to understand. And through that, we then understand also what is it that people pick from the different experiences that they go through, through history, through daily interactions in different spaces. And this is the, Kim, what you just uh, mentioned as the change uh, that happens. Gender is not fixed. It's a social construct. It changes through time in the same person over history uh, across different levels of social organization. So it is a very interesting concept and you can uh, study it and in endless ways and never really get to fully understand it. But the more we try and the more we get perspectives of people, I think the better uh, we will be able to connect with people and be able to um, advance uh, their well-being and, and livelihoods. Thank you. Thank you. There's some key points for consideration there and the importance of qualitative research methods coming out. Again, in our previous series, we talked about participatory research methods that help to connect with communities. Catherine, did you have something to add? Jeremiah mentioned something that made me think of this related point, that when we consider gender, gender also doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Gender is one form of our identities. And so 
we also have to think about how gender intersects with our other social identities. Um, and so we're not just talking about about what gender we identify, you know, our, our gender identification. We're also talking about how that intersects with our race, our socioeconomic status, our age, all these other factors, our sexual orientation. Um, and so it becomes very complex, but we do have to consider the interactions that, um, that also affect gender. Thanks very much, Catherine. So intersectionality is really important here, how, how different factors um, intersect together to change the circumstances and experiences of TB with people. And I think, you know, this really has set up the uh, this episode really well. And I'm going to hand over to Rona, who's going to bring it much more into focus around tuberculosis. Over to you, Rona. Thank you, Kim. This is already exciting, just listening to, you know, uh, the conversation already. And so I'm going to come back to Catherine um, and ask you, Catherine, why do you think, uh, you know, gender or um, why is gender equitable access to prevention and care important in TB? Thanks, Rona. I think, I think really simply because everyone who's affected by TB should have access to prevention and care. With a bit more detail, you know, we have strong data showing that, you know, as you mentioned, there were 10 million people who developed TB last year. Over five and a half million of those people were men. That's almost twice the number of women who developed disease in the same year. And so there's some real disparities going on there in terms of risk of disease. And not only that, but in the vast majority of settings, men have less access to timely diagnosis and treatment. And so the life-saving benefits of, of prevention and care are outside their reach. And that's a real problem. You know, it means that these are fathers and sons, their husbands, their partners, their friends and brothers who, whose lives are really affected by this disease. And they're not the only ones. Their illness means that there's millions of women who have to take on additional caring responsibilities, millions of households who face economic pressures and possibly catastrophic cost, millions of families who may face stigma or be excluded from their communities. And because of the high numbers of men who are affected by TB and the long periods of time that, that elapse before they're able to access treatment, it means there's a lot of opportunities for further infection. And so we see that most new cases of TB, most new infections in men and women and in children are likely due to contact with affected men. So this really has implications, not just for men, not just for any single gender, but for the entire population and for our global efforts to try to end TB. Wow, thank you, Catherine. You really bring out all these points. And, and you know, it's interesting to actually realize, I think, for many of our listeners, that men might actually have less access. You would think maybe the power comes with more access. But as we understand the social constructs and the social and economic issues around it, we are learning a lot from you today. Jeremiah, how and why does gender affect access? You know, uh, it's, it's quite interesting to, to hear what Catherine, you know, was saying. So how and why does gender actually affect access to TB prevention and care? So Rona, uh, this is really, it, it gets more complex. So after the picture that Catherine has painted, um, obviously the next question is, like you are saying, why do we have this? And, um, 
often we tend to lean towards methodologies uh, that try to help us to understand this, to explain such phenomena. And I think one of the key starting points would be uh, to reflect on what gender is. Um, and, and we have said earlier that gender is a social construct and the WHO uh, specifically defined gender uh, as, as, as roles and behaviors that are socially constructed um, and that any society considers appropriate for men and women and boys and people with non-binary identities. So in other words, these are roles and attributes that emerge and are sustained and are enacted and reinforced through relationships of people. And I think this is through these this dynamics, through these relationships, through these pressures to enact these roles that society has placed upon us, that we are exposed to certain behaviors, to certain contexts, to, 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 to ways of doing things that enhance the chances that we may end up suffering ill health and maybe failing to access health care. I, I could uh, elaborate uh, on that. Um, for instance, um, the, if society has expectations and pressures for people to demonstrate competence in their assigned roles as men, how does this then shape what they do in terms of health? If men are expected to be uh, socializing, to be uh, spending time in the open, to be outside the domestic space, if that is the gender expectation uh, of the society in which they live, then these men are going to end up in spaces where they are exposed to uh, the risk of tuberculosis. If the expectation, for instance, is that men must be strong, they must not be weak, uh, for them to seek health care would suggest that they are weak. And so... They, they may want to downplay their symptoms in order to conform to this gendered expectation that is socially constructed. Oh, thank you, Jeremiah. You know, when I was asking you the question, I sort of deliberately said, with their power, shouldn't they have access, you know? So that kind of societal peer pressure, you definitely brought out that point, you know, um, very, very clearly. I'll come back to you, Catherine. And ask, so then how do gender disparities in access to prevention and care fit within, you know, broader issues around gender and TB? How, how you know, how does this then, you know, um, happen? Thanks, Rena. I think that's a, a really good question because while access to prevention and treatment directly affects people's lives for those who are affected by TB, we're talking about a disease that also has tremendous social and economic impacts. And so we do need to consider um, stigma and economic impact on households and all these other areas. I think as a whole, we don't quite know. Gender and TB is getting more and more attention, and so there's more analyses taking place. Um, there's, a growing there's a growing recognition uh, that some of our measures of stigma may be biased by gender norms by focusing on different aspects of stigma that are associated with male or female gender. Um, there's some analyses going on now looking at how economic impact differs by households depending on the gender of the head of households. 
We know that economic impact is worse when the head of household is affected. We don't know whether there's a further difference there, whether the head of household is a man or a woman. I think these areas will, will be learning more about um, in coming years, coming months and years. There are other areas as well. So when we think about caring responsibilities, we know that these fall heavily on women, whether it's TB or any other, um, any other disease. And so certainly women are disproportionately affected by the caring responsibilities associated with TB. I realize as I'm saying all of this that I'm speaking about gender in a very binary way. That's not entirely intentional, but it's more because of, of the data that we have. Um, so another part of the discussion is understanding how TB affects and impacts individuals with non-binary gender identities. And there's some growing work to try to understand those experiences of gender minorities, but currently we just have very little data to know um, how their experience differs from others. So thank you, Catherine. Um, that really sounds very, very informative. I wonder if, um, Jeremiah, you would have something to say there. Thank you so much, Rona. Uh, just to tag back a little uh, to the question of uh, men, uh, of, of, of how gender um, affects uh, care and pre prevention. And I just want to, uh, again, qualify. Uh, my work has really been primarily on men. Um, and, and, and this is where I've really been working. Of course, um, initially, my goal was to um, see how this can help to advance women's health. We actually uh, could uh, have some, some benefit in terms of addressing men's own needs. So I just wanted to say my work has really been around men, but what we tend to see uh, in general conversations is just the extent to which men are blamed for failing to access health care. Uh, they are considered to be stoical. They are considered to be unreasonable. And I think uh, Catherine has touched on this. Uh, a lot of what men do, certainly there is uh, instances where men do blame. But if we look at gender as a social construct, we also need to understand what has shaped the behavior that these men are displaying. I think this is really critical. So we really need to understand how the historical factors have shaped men, how they've ended up, who they are, and what has interacted between the past and the present in order to shape what they say today and what they do today. So I just wanted to bring that up and, and, and highlight it. Um, we also um, have seen in some of our work how women also contribute to shaping men. Uh, they are, they've got certain expectations of what a perfect man, an ideal man is. And often these are not very healthy uh, ideas, but men are under pressure to demonstrate those. And, 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 and in, many, in many societies, we have an ideal representation of what a man should be. And very few men can attain that. So men end up having to reach at what they can achieve and overdoing it in order to demonstrate that they belong to the league of men. And when they overdo those things, then they end up engaging in harmful practices. So there is a lot of conversations in terms of how gender shapes men and how they access um, uh, health. And I just wanted to sort of bring that up a little bit. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremiah. And um, I'll stay with you, Jeremiah, for a bit. 
and ask, so how do these issues, you know, challenge our understanding of gender and vulnerabilities? And I think, you know, you, you begin that conversation very well. Uh, but generally, how do these issues challenge our understanding of, you know, the issue of gender and vulnerabilities? Wow, Rona, um, you, you, you're asking a question that really has uh, preoccupied a lot of, 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 of people and debates and has actually raised quite a, a bit of controversy. Um, it's easy when you focus, for instance, on a gender that is supposed to be powerful and you are implying that actually they are not as powerful Whereas their behaviors, their decisions as decision makers, as people, as partners in homes, their behaviors have, as, 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 as people in society, their behaviors have harmed another gender. So it's a very, very tricky field to, to, to work uh, on. And, and, and one really has to be very careful. And sometimes they can really be very heated debates uh, around how you then project this picture uh, that Catherine's epidemiological uh, data or, or, or paints about men that they are twice as likely to experience negative outcomes in TB, not to seek care. How do you project it when women have for decades been struggling with gender power imbalances? So this is where the issues of vulnerability, the issues of what terms do we use how do we use these terms? Are these terms going to resonate? Are these terms going to touch raw nerves? Are they going to shake to kind of rock the boat? How 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 are these? How do we discuss this 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 challenge? Yet at the same time, we we cannot move away. We cannot run away from the fact that men are certainly turning out to have needs that need to be addressed. And as Catherine says. Men are living in communities. They live with families. They are fathers. And what they experience, what they grapple with, health issues they struggle with, will certainly spill to their families. And so this is the contradiction that we deal with, uh, if I may put it that way. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremiah. And, I, I, you know, just thinking about it, this doesn't just affect them as individuals or their families. But I can imagine that it also gets in the way of the interventions that are supposed to come in, you know, to, to help them deal with this. I think there's so much that I would love to ask you, but I will just hand you back to Kim to give us a quick wrap up and some advice to take with us. Kim. Thanks very much, Rona. Um, I'm just picking up on a, a, f a few things that a few terms that were kind of thrown around in that conversation. And there's a lot of blame. And also the term stigma was brought up in relation to gender. Would either of you like to say a little bit more about how men are, are blamed and, and what that means in a, a kind of practical setting? And the same with relation to stigma and how that affects access. Thanks, Kim. Um, I'll build on from what I just said. Uh, men are considered powerful, and that there is a contradiction there. Um, they are considered powerful. They are considered to have agency, which is greater than women's, um, to have control. This is an assumption, but in reality, um, many men feel powerless. Many men are 
struggle with not being able to control their circumstances. However, just what we know about what is negative that man does has been able to contribute to a public uh, picture uh, that, 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 that portrays them as um, irresponsible, as you know, uh, open to blame, as being the ones to blame uh, for some of the issues that they deal with. And this tends to happen if you look at the immediate picture. I mean, you, for instance, you just look at the fact that a man has refused to engage with a health facility. If you look at that, that, that very limited picture, you, it, it, it makes sense to blame the man. Why doesn't he uh, engage with, with, with uh, health? And then you try to now understand, and this may involve uh, engaging with this particular man or doing research on men uh, in, a, in a broader sense, and then trying to locate what else, how a health system has been structured, a lot of other things could be contributing to this. So uh, blaming men reflects taking limited, and I'm not saying men should not be blamed, but blame is a very strong uh, term, uh, rather it is this need to understand why people behave the way they do and then um, try to help them uh, resolve the practical issues and challenges that they deal with. Thanks, Jeremiah. I think that's, that's a really accurate picture. And I think this idea of blame is really pervasive on this issue. You know, if we look at the, the key TB determinants that the World Health Organization highlights in their report, three of those disproportionately affect men. But what are they? Diabetes, tobacco smoking, and harmful alcohol consumption. It's very easy to blame someone when we're talking about behaviors that are that are self-harming in that way. You know, we also look at um, some of the specific key populations for TB, of which men make up a majority. And these are things like minors, prisoners, and detainees, and people who use drugs. Again, these are some definitions where it's very easy to place blame on individuals for their behaviors. But this isn't just specific to TB. This isn't just specific to this area of research. Let's consider that life expectancy is consistently longer for women than men. What are the reasons for that? The World Health Organization says that it's the way that men work, their willingness to take risks, and their lack of engagement with healthcare systems. And all of this comes, you know, the reasons for that all come back to what Jeremiah has been discussing so eloquently today. It's easy to place blame for those things, but we cannot just take those behaviors in isolation without recognizing um, why they come to be. Thanks very much, Catherine and Jeremiah. It's really helped to deconstruct gender and what it means in reality. And I think it also links to individuals and their own lived realities. And that intersectionality aspect means that no single men, boys, girls, or women's experiences alike. And then it's really important to understand different behaviors and social constructs and how they shape an individual and accessing and diagnosing services around TB. So um, thank you very much for highlighting that. Now we're on to our quick fire round. And this is really designed to kind of give advice to researchers who want to consider gender in TB. Jeremiah? What connections with people and communities are needed to increase gender equity in TB? I think the key thing really is to uh, 
to, to, to reach communities in order to understand how the communities are structures, the communities' needs, the communities' social arrangements, the expectations. And also, we also want to understand what structures, what interactions worsen uh, vulnerability of people. So really, a lot of it revolves around understanding co communities. And this text research, um, we, we cannot connect with communities without understanding uh, how these communities are structured and, and what dynamics, what systems are at play in these communities. Um, yeah, and not uh, addressing the community's needs means that uh, whatever health issues we are dealing with will continue and persist uh, without being fully resolved. Jeremiah, what is your advice to researchers out there that are just joining the TV field? What would you say to them? Maybe two, uh, two, two key uh, issues. The first is really that uh, if there is a way, and I know it's really difficult given the funding context, given, given the time-bound uh, nature of most of our work, but if there was a way we need complex interventions because our lives are so complex and way our interventions address just one issue we are living a lot of what sustains the issues that we're trying to to address unresolved ah uh, we, we we can think about just how uh covid has just uh made clear how much we need to address social issues in their complexity. And this also applies to, to, to all other diseases, including tuberculosis. And the second point would be, uh, we need to proceed with research to understand context. Again, resources are required, long-term engagement. That to me is very critical. Thank you. Thank you very much. Catherine, same question to you. What advice would you give researchers just coming into TB so that they consider gender and how they can connect with communities and people to understand better, to understand gender better? I think my first advice would be to keep an open mind, you know, challenge what it is that you, your perceptions about gender and how it might um, impact TB and impact communities in this situation. Look at the data that exists but also learn from the communities where you're working. We have overarching themes that we've seen repeated in research about how gender impacts TB, but they're not the same. The details are not the same in every setting. And so learn from the communities where you're working. Don't take their, their knowledge and their experience for granted. Thank you so much. So it comes back to that gender is time sensitive, challenge your perceptions moving forward, keep an open mind and bring back to Jeremiah's point, we need complex multifaceted information interventions that really address social constructs so that we can connect with communities in a stronger way to understand their needs. That's wonderful. Um, Rona, I don't know about you, but I've certainly learned a lot. And um, this is only episode one out of four focused on TB. Is there anything else to add from you, Rona? No, Kim, this um, has been fantastic. I, I, I didn't expect any less. So thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Jeremiah. It was really a pleasure having you with us. 
Yes, thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jeremiah. And uh, for our listeners, our second episode will be out next week where you will once again uh, meet Rhoda and myself and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Bye, Catherine. Bye, Jeremiah. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for having us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Bye.